1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the economist and author Will Page and myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we're in conversation with our fourth special guest, discussing the topic of hypercompetition in the written and spoken word. More in a moment. Welcome to Bubble Trouble. I want to welcome along my co-host, Will Page. Hey, Will.
1: Great to be here talking about my favorite Scottish word,
2: books. Books. And welcome our special guest today, Andrew Savakis. Thanks, Richard. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm currently the Chief Strategy Officer at
3: Get Abstract the world's largest provider of book summaries. And before that, I had an executive positions at Safari Books Online and O'Reilly Media. And I actually wrote a book for O'Reilly Media way back in 2004 about, of all things, writing word macros. So I've been, uh, I know how the sausage is made, and I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it.
1: So you, you wrote your book just before iTunes came to Europe. So that's how we're going to date you, my friend. We're here to talk about hyper-competition, which we've tried to summarize as that point where quantity increases and quality decreases. But if we look back on previous episodes, Andrew, it's interesting that we've talked about advertising, which has to make a connection within four seconds. We've talked about music, which has to make a connection in under four minutes. And then we talked about podcasts, which has to make a connection in under 40 minutes. But we're here to talk about that favourite Scottish word, books, again. And, you know, it's interesting for me that it takes four weeks to finish a book. Perhaps for Richard Kramer, it takes four days to finish a book. It's taking up a lot of time. So in this battle for attention, for this scarce attention, we're talking about a topic which takes up a lot of our time. And I want to understand, over the course of the next 25 minutes, how does that industry survive? But firstly, let's just take a trip down memory lane. The book industry hasn't changed much in the past 20, 30 years. But what puzzles me is so many opportunities to change seem to have passed it by. So could you just give us a kind of... Greatest hits of successes and failures of the book industry from your perspective over the past, let's say, since 2004.
3: Sure, that's a great question, and it's true that not a lot seems to have changed about the book industry, and that's in part because not a lot changes about books from the reader's perspective. You know, technology has been around for a thousand years or more now, right? And a lot of the innovation happened quite a bit ago. So my favorite example is that it took the hyphen several hundred years to make it from you know Germany to the UK. Page numbering, indexing, tables of content, word spacing, all these things were in their time innovation and technology innovation. My, one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, Alan Kay, who said, technology is anything that was invented after you were born. Uh, everything else is just stuff. And all these things did happen for a very long time. And the form factor, as it were, you know, was pretty much in place. A lot of the innovation that has happened has actually been kind of behind the scenes. Um, a lot of things that have to do with distribution and sales and marketing. I mean, things, again, stuff we think is just stuff, like paperback books, were a significant innovation that brought a wider range of of reading options to a much wider mass affluent audience following the post-war generation. And something else, I, I would say the most interesting innovation in publishing in the last, since 2004, is the opportunity to take things that used to have to be books and make them much more usable. There's a whole category of books that are essentially printouts of databases. Think about a dictionary or a telephone book. Even an atlas Wow! is surprisingly more effective and more efficient to have Google Maps or just playing Google, to have the database itself rather than the printout in codex form.
2: Yeah, one of the things that springs to mind is when I first came to London 30 years ago, living without a London A to Z book, which came in every size from three inches diagonal to... 15 or 16 inches diagonal, I mean, living without the A to Z in London was impossible. And now I guess they're just museum relics. Now, since this podcast is constantly thinking about markets and how they affect the way we think and the language they use, can you talk us through what I know has become an incredibly concentrated ownership structure in the book industry with these sort of giant conglomerates? Was this really driven by industrial logic that, Really, it was only one of these giant publishers that could take a popular title and translate it into the 86 languages that potentially were markets for it? Or was it driven by the kind of financial imperative or logic, if you want to call it that, that we're constantly debunking on this podcast, where the beneficiaries are more the private equity funds or shareholders, less the companies themselves or the end end consumers of the product?
3: It's an interesting evolution of the industry that, you know, people who live through it have fascinating stories to tell about how it went from this very cordial, old school, old boys club of famous authors coming through and having three martini lunches and this great, fun time to be in places like New York and London, and then following on, the Growth of conglomeration across many industries. Um, there was this sense of, well, this could be a, another industry to to bring into that model. Um, but unfortunately, the realities of publishing are, I- in many ways, the people who do it don't don't do it for the money. It's an industry that that is treated a lot more like a vocation, and and in some ways, um, something that people do because they're passionate about it rather than about money. And that, in some ways, that that can Depress some of the, the economic uh, realities of, of the industry. And you know, one of my favorite stories is that when General Electric acquired RCA in 1986, at the time at least, it was a very well run company, it immediately shut down two underperforming divisions that did not meet its standards of profitability. The first was a poultry grower, and the second was Random House.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to say that will that sounds a heck of a lot like the music industry because in other podcasts <laughs> about hyper competition, we've wondered what prompts the is it 65,000 tracks that are uploaded to Spotify every week from people's bedrooms with Every day, every day, every day. Every day. And we obviously don't all have the wherewithal to write a book every day, but it sounds like you're you're dealing with a huge uh, explosion of supply and very little ways to monetize that in terms of profitable demand.
3: That's exactly right, and so there are two really important categories of books to think about. One is the front list, and this is the books that a publishing company, in broad strokes, the new books they publish in a given year, for example. Mm. The other category is the back list, which is everything they have already published in the past. And a, a huge amount of the profits in publishing come from the backlist because those costs have already been spent. And so it's, mm. besides the the marginal cost of printing a new book, um, it's a significant source of profit for a publishing industry. Uh, the front list has become quite a battleground. As you pointed out, the number of titles being published has exploded. And so the number of copies a publisher can expect to sell of a given book has gone down. Mm, and so wow. they have to, in this frantic sort of treadmill of publishing more titles to earn the same amount of revenue, which continues to feed the oversupply. Um, and at the same time, the backlist, which used to be maybe a few hundred thousand titles, is now pushing 20 million because nothing ever has to go out of print anymore. And those two things together have dramatically altered the economics of the industry and driven a lot of the consolidation that you're seeing.
1: You're me of one of my favorite childhood books, Alice in Wonderland and the famous Red Queen race, where it said... You have to run as fast as you possibly can, just in order to stand still.
3: That's exactly right. That's the situation that we're in, where it's a very logical response to say, "Well, if my average revenue per title is going down, I can solve that by printing more or publishing more titles." Um, But again, it just feeds into this treadmill.
2: So, how come no one of these financially minded publishers has set taken the approach that, "Look, you know what? Let's just..." diminish the importance of this front list. Let's not publish so many titles and let's just milk that back catalog because we certainly see that, and Will can speak to this, in the music industry where the rights of of artists that are now dead and buried, are transacting from hand to hand for hundreds of millions.
1: That's right, Richard. Just to jump in quickly, I think the universal IPU prospectus said that 30% of their business was frontline and 70% was catalog. The money's made at the back, not at the front of the release schedule.
2: So hasn't any clever private equity boffin said, you know what, we'll buy one of these publishers, stop publishing books, <laughs> and, and just milk the, the long-dead authors that we can we have the rights for?
3: Yeah, I mean, you do see some of that. You know, the challenge there is you have something of the the kind of Lindy effect here and that there is some older catalog that will continue to sell indefinitely. But mm. especially stuff that is published more recently... Because it has to compete with such a broad volume, the sort of the the, the shelf life, pardon the pun, keeps getting smaller and smaller for a lot mm. of titles. And so you know you may have this significant catalog that can earn revenue for a long period of time, but there is a degree of decay there. And the last thing someone looking at growth wants is is decay, right? That said, there has been some interesting models developed. So I'm thinking of Open Road Media, for example, which you know got into the business of of going through um, Backlists and finding popular titles that were not currently licensed for eBooks and mm. acquiring the licenses from the authors, the authors' estate, and publishing new editions of those, and has created a, a quite nice business uh, around that. So you see some of that innovation, but a lot of it is, you know, to your point, you've got this this valuable asset, but it does have a decay function to it, and that's something that a lot of those growth minded people are going to shy away from.
2: And if I could pick up on just two things very quickly that you mentioned. One is you talked about shelf space and then just ahead of using the word books you use that sort of elusive fifth letter of the language E which which clearly e-commerce has had a huge change in how that shelf space is considered because we're not talking about the 50 or 100,000 titles that a bookshop can put on the shelves anymore. We're talking about the 20 million in, in the Amazon or or any other purveyors warehouse. So how has the, the process of of producing those books and storing them and delivering them to consumers changed with that huge wave of e-commerce that we've seen taken over the publishing world in the past 20 years? And indeed, maybe e-books not having had the impact that some people thought they would have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Sure, Richard. I'm going to
3: separate your, your two E's there. There's the e-commerce side, and the story there is, I think, the one that everyone talks about and knows about in the publishing industry, and that's Amazon. It's always been an industry where there was very little connection between a publishing company and the end reader. Publishing has long been a B2B business where you had sales reps calling on accounts and selling books to retailers. And at one point, it was a lot of independence, and then over time, you had the chains. And then as you move into the e-commerce age, it's really just Amazon in terms of driving e-commerce sales. And there's some, you know, recently you have bookshop.org, for example, which has, you know, done tens of millions of dollars in sales, but that's, that's nothing compared to what, what Amazon does. Right. And, you know, the, the challenge there is you know, publishers were never great at, at selling direct anyway. That wasn't their business. And, and no one else figured out how to successfully compete with Amazon at a large scale. I'd like to think that my, one of my prior employers, O'Reilly Media, we had a a great direct business there, but that was in some, something of a niche within the industry. On the ebook side, I I will be the first to admit, I was one of the ones that thought it was really going to take over the world and it was going to be, you know, quickly the majority of reading was going to be electronic. And and I I certainly will acknowledge Uh uh, being wrong about that. At the same time, it has, um, Allowed us to use the mobile devices we carry around with us all the time as always on 24 7 bookstores. Um, And for a certain kind of book and a certain kind of reader, it's a tremendous new opportunity to access material. But to the point earlier about the level of time commitment a book requires, it's just a lot harder to fit into your day, especially the days that we keep chopping up, as compared with all the other you know, endorphin-friendly entertainment candy that we can fill our, our screens with.
1: Before we get to the break, a very quick anecdote and then a question for you. Um, when I learned that my book, Tars and Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption, was in production, this is right about the second week of January of this year, I called up Adrian Ferner, a very famous organizational psychologist at UCL, 45 books to his name, 5,000 published papers. and I was crying. I was like, Adrian, finally, somewhere in the middle of England, somebody is producing 30,000 copies of my book, a book dedicated to my parents. It's happening, Adrian. And his words were, well done, Will. Remember, he is a psychologist. Well done, Will. Congratulations. You're very talented. The book will be a great success. Now, I want you to sit down carefully, reflect for a minute, because you're about to learn what it means to be a sperm donor, because that's all you ever are in the book industry. (laughs) Never a truer word was said. I'm just one sperm on the petri dish desperately trying to find an egg. So just walk me through production and consumption. How many sperms are there? And how many actually find eggs? <laughs>
3: that's, a, that's a very interesting uh, metaphor for the book publishing process. And there has always been far more manuscripts out there than publishing capacity to print them. What's different now is... is you know, fifty years ago, there were only a few people who could afford the capital required or just the, the the cost required to finance a print run. We're in a different age now. You've got platforms like Wattpad out there, places where people can can publish book length material and get a lot of feedback. But in the traditional kind of publishing industry, um, you, you do have this wealth of potential manuscripts and it's still the case that as with many creative endeavours and I'm sure this is true with music too the saying in publishing is the first print run is your market research it is still maddeningly difficult to know what's going to work and there's, there's sort of apocryphal stories about publishing companies you know getting acquired by big conglomerates bringing in their fancy consultants who come in look around do the numbers and say well I've solved your problem what you have to do is print more of the best sellers and, and fewer of the ones that don't sell
1: <laughs> yeah. it, reminds and, me of, it reminds me of Guy hands when he bought EMI he said record label sign 10x and hope that one's going to be hit I want to turn that ratio between one of two I said to him, well perhaps you just used to go to the casino and put your chips on red then right.
2: <laughs> we need to wrap up our first half and we've gone from three martini lunches to sperm ownership and uh, and everything in between <laughs> the one obviously apocryphal story on that front is is obviously Bloomsbury where you know they had no idea when they published this first kind of strange, typical Joseph Campbell hero's journey book called Harry Potter, that they would have a global phenomenon on their hands that would turn uh, uh, one author on the planet. I don't know how many others there are, but I don't think there are very many into a billionaire and totally transform the nature of small scale publishing. And that was, was clearly a roll of the dice that they didn't even remotely anticipate and was, was beyond their wildest dreams. I'd like to come back in the second half, get Will going on this notion of how you sort out hyper-competition. And then maybe we can ask Andrew for some of the smoke signals, the kind of things that when you hear a publishing industry executive say them to you, you just roll your eyes and wince. The kind of things that you really want to w- watch out for as, as knowing that the, the sector has has succumbed to bubble trouble as opposed to kept its feet on the ground. But it sounds like with a, a million books published every year around you, it's hard to find out where that ground is. So back in a moment with the second half of Bubble Trouble.
1: Back again with part two of Bubble Trouble, where this time we're discussing hyper-competition in the world of books. That's books with three O's, not two in Scotland. And we're here with Andrew Savakis, who knows more than anyone else about the book industry. But given that everyone else seems to know nothing, that's a pretty low bar. But we are certainly enjoying your insights, Andrew. Let's come back to sperm donors. As an author who has produced some sperm, desperately trying to find an egg and make this book a success. There is an awful lot of sperm coming out this year. And I'm interested in this balance of how many missies do you need to have in order to get a hit? So talk me through ratios, talk me through returns, talk me through the way that the publishers go to the casino in order to get that one sperm to get lucky with that one egg. Give me the odds.
3: (laughs) Fair enough. The odds, uh, unfortunately, are not very good. The last data point I could find is, is a little bit uh, a few years back now. Um, but i
1: want a Petri dish and I'm getting cold here, man. You've got to get me this egg. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but looking at, uh, according to Nielsen BookScan, which tracks point of sale data for booksellers, about 2% of the books published or uh, sold in a year uh, have, have sales for more than, more than 5,000 copies. Um, so the vast majority of books wow. do not sell very many copies.
1: And is five thousand like a benchmark of recovering your costs you good at five thousand or I guess it's a question of how much you press it, up right
3: sure, it's gonna vary de- quite a bit depending on the publisher um, so some publishers five thousand ten thousand that's a pretty decent frontless title and hopefully it will continue to earn money over time on the backlist. But of course, if you've spent 100,000, 500,000, $1 a million dollars on an author advance, that's not going to do it for you. So there is something of an arms race. I and mean, we talked earlier about the, the challenging economics of this industry is everyone's trying to go for that big hit and willing to pay for the big name that's going to do it. But laying out these significant advances just means you're, you're raising the bar even higher to how many copies have to sell to earn that back. So unfortunately, Will, the odds are not that great.
1: Alright, let me get into something which I think Richard Cramer will be digging on here, which is, does that increase inequality in the advances you're seeing being laid out? The publisher goes to the casino, they're betting even bigger on those very few hits meaning they've got even less to spend on that long tail of misses. Are you seeing that kind of widening inequality in terms of the advances that are offered?
3: Publishers have started to adapt a bit to that and are putting more into the backlist. For a long time, I think it was sort of, hey, the backlist revenue is great. We're going to take it where we can get it. We'll do what we can to support it, but it wasn't really a priority, and all the marketing was really spent on the front list. And what publishers have figured out is, a positive thing about having no book ever go out of print is that when a current something, you know, happens in the news um, that brings up a topic, for example, last year all of a sudden there was a significant interest in books about the 1918 Spanish flu and a lot of these titles had probably barely sold anything in the last 10 or 20 years and all of a sudden because they were there they could they could drive sales. And publishers have started to figure out if they are careful and cautious and thoughtful about it, they can do targeted Facebook ads and drive sales and interest in backlist titles along with current events and and things happening in the news, which, which does help.
2: So one of the things in, in Bubble Trouble we're really interested in is, is the way in which uh, companies or industries are obliged to kind of stay in their lane or realize that they need to get in another one. And we've seen these big advances for big names, whether it's the Obamas, and we see the treadmill of, of whether it's Lee Child or Tom Clancy, the kind of the mega hits that you know are going to come out with a book every year. But I'm also mindful that seeing Will do his book, Tarzan Economics... He's got a book. He's got a website. He's got a podcast. He does media. He does speaking events. How is the industry coping with this sort of structural change from publishing, which is let's let's produce a bunch of pages, glue them together and ship them out in cardboard boxes to a much broader range of multimedia they've got to do in terms of promotion and even in terms of ways to monetize the exact same content, but not by publishing it?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a fascinating kind of paradox in the publishing industry around this. So you mentioned someone like Tom Clancy or, you know, Will Page, similarly famous authors. Um, to be successful in the modern media ecosystem, you do need what's referred to in the industry as a platform. You know, what, you know, what's your newsletter size, what's your Twitter following, how many people are, are you on Instagram? What's your blog look like? And the more you already have that, the more attractive you are to a publisher. Mm. Um, at the same time, the more you have that, the less you actually need the publisher. And so there's this really interesting tension there where the publishers are saying, well, I'd love to look at your manuscript. Tell me more about your platform because they know that's a really effective means of growing an audience and helping to market the book. At the same time, uh, a lot of people who do have those are saying, you know, I'm only getting this small point of the percentage of the revenue. You're supposed to be doing all the work here.
1: Yeah, that's right. The ratio, the publisher owns 80% of your book, but you're asked to do 80% of the work. I haven't met an author who hasn't irked at that observation. They just couldn't do the maths themselves.
3: Absolutely. And at the same time, there is certainly an interest, I think, among some publishers to try to do more to support authors. But building websites and helping grow social media accounts is not in the core competencies of the publishing industry. And it's yeah. it's a big challenge.
1: Yeah, my publisher asked me, well, a data dashboard was, assuming it was something that you found on your card. Rich is going to get you smoking on some signals, but before we get into that, I want to get this NFT question covered off, because in a lot of talk about NFTs and music, as you know, uh, NFTs are spreading into other forms of media, and there's been some articles about NFTs for books. Can you tackle it in two steps for me? Firstly, just walk me through the copyright issue around NFTs. My understanding is, as soon as a retailer purchases a book from a wholesaler, that book is officially public domain, the doctrine of first sale. Then secondly, if you were to do an NFT for a book, is it the book that's NFTed or is it the art that actually becomes the NFT book? Let's go to the copyright question first.
3: Sure, and I'll preface this by saying I am not a lawyer, but what I understand about this is you're absolutely right. There is this notion of mm. the first sale doctrine, and if you go to your bookstore and you buy the book, then you can do what you'd like with it in terms of reselling it to a used bookstore or giving it to a friend or you know, doing other things.
1: But you can't do the digital book.
3: Aha, that's the thing. So if you, all of us, every day, multiple times a day, click through lots of terms of services and check boxes and say, yeah, I agree, whatever,
2: right? <laughs> we call that the data donation agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is what I, I regularly refer to that as the that is the data donation agreement. I have agreed to donate all of my data without ever reading. And the privacy policies of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, all these guys, they are somewhere between seven and 12,000 words long.
1: Richard, I don't know whether you got the Pfizer vaccine, but we've got to get you to Congress quickly because they're discussing this right now. So
3: the part of the data donation agreement that uh, you sign when you buy an ebook is that you're not actually buying an ebook you are licensing that book from the retailer and that's the difference there so that's why you have this this inability to you know resell an ebook at least in, in in most places where you buy them today on the nft side you know, this is still the wild west with NFTs, and there's lots of different ways to, to to do this. And certainly, some people in the publishing industry are thinking, "Well, if this is this unique, identifiable digital thing, can't that function as a form of copy protection or something like that on, on, on an ebook?" I don't think quite so. There's nothing that would prevent someone from just like, you know, if, if the NFT is pointing to ownership of a GIF, someone else could just copy that GIF themselves. Same thing with the content there. Two things that I I think are interesting with NFTs is one is creating collectible editions where you are not just selling the book. You're selling some limited thing that probably entitles you to access to the author or something like that. I think an NFT is a great way to implement that behind the scenes, the sort of plumbing of it. The other side of it is the way that rights are managed in the industry is still, at least in my view, pretty inefficient compared to what we do in other industries. And, you know, I know, Will, I learned a lot about the way right societies work in reading your book. And, and there's really nothing like that and, and nowhere near the scale of efficiency there. And I, I wonder if there's an opportunity to apply the technology that underpins NFTs to, rather than just sort of silly cat gifts, um, you know, facilitate uh, better
1: transactions for books. Just a quick one, and I'll hand you over to Richard to get you smoking. But there is still no efficient way to license lyrics and books, which is why you never see lyrics and books. Lyrics should be all over books. Books are personal. Lyrics are personal, but you cannot get a license for lyrics and books. Richard, let's get smoking.
2: Yeah. Um, so, what we try to do on Bubble Trouble is give everyday people uh, the tools to understand when there's bubbles forming and there could be trouble. Looking at the language of the markets and and certainly in industry after industry, there have to be those couple of things that you hear top management say. One of my favorite examples is, you know, when management's use the word strong, we had another strong set of titles this quarter. Well, what does that mean? They were weightlifting books. Who knows? Um, or they just were very heavy books because we did them all in hardback with laminated pages. Uh, Richard, so Richard we- I've,
1: I've got a better one. I've got a better one. In music, when you have to give feedback on an album you never listen to, you simply describe it as being too angular. Hey, Andrew, that record you released, it was a little too angular. Make it less angular, you've got to hit. In books, I've seen this expression used time and time again, Andrew, and you're going to wince when I say this. Let's say Richard's published a new book, and I'm not bothered to read it by being asked to review it. You say, Richard marshals his material incredibly well. Richard's really good at marshalling his... What the F-U-C-K is marshalling material.
2: There you go. Get those those commas standing in line. So can you help us understand a couple of smoke signals, things that when you hear publishing execs say, they just make you cringe and you realize these guys have gone off the reservation (laughs) and lost the plot?
3: Sure thing. Sure thing. Well, one thing I I hear a lot, and I maybe wouldn't put it as strongly as you do, but I hear uh, a lot of publishers say, we need to grow our direct-to-consumer strategy. You know, they, they all know it's not great to have most of their sales controlled by, by one retailer. Say, well, if we sell them ourselves, we can make more money and diversify our sales channel. And the challenge there is for companies that have very little experience building a direct consumer channel, um, a lot of times the approach is to put the book for sale on their website and try to get people to come and buy it. And, you know, a couple things there. One is, nine times out of ten, the metadata they're presenting on the catalog page for the book is identical to the metadata on the catalog page for every other retailer of that book. So now you're competing for audience Mm. with the same, essentially, content.
2: Let me step in, and the analogy to me there is music streaming services, which, if you choose a music streaming service based on what you listened to when you were in high school right? Then every single one of the streaming services is going to have Fleetwood Mac or Elton John or whatever your favorite high school band was. And if they don't have them, you won't subscribe. But it's just table stakes. And from what you're saying is, if I want to buy a new hardback fiction book, there's going directly to the publisher is no different than going to any of the other dozens of outlets they'll be offering them. And they're ending up alienating their retail partners, by trying to do an end run around them.
3: That's exactly right. If what they're selling is the same thing you can buy somewhere else at a lower price, that's a pretty uphill battle, especially right. if your approach is often customer acquisition, where you're you know fighting for the same same Facebook ads and the same you know AdWords. So right. I think the way to address that is how do you sell something? How do you offer something that someone can't get somewhere else? And that's one of the biggest challenges for publishers who are trying to build a direct business is to have something that's more than just the same book someone can get somewhere else.
2: Right. And what's another smoke signal? Something else that when a publishing exec says that, you say, well, we know that's not going to work.
3: <laughs> I, I think one of the things I hear a lot in, in conversation about any number of different potential initiatives is, well, we, we can't do X, whatever X is, because it's going to cannibalize our print sales. And legitimate perspective at the same time there is so much evidence now that all of these other things that you can do be they ebooks be they different editions be they summaries which is something i do in my you know every day these things are additive and complementary rather than substitutive and that's something that that continues to pervade the industry and, and i really wish we could move beyond that
1: yeah i just to jump in on that real quick that uh you look at streaming, and now in the UK, vinyl is more than £1 in every 10 getting to record labels every month now. Worth more than CDs, cassettes, and downloads put together, the three formats which followed it. And it's the people who pay for streaming who are also paying for vinyl. No executive would have ever predicted that, but now you're making a ton of money by exploiting it. Popular is popular wherever it is popular. And not only your point about cannibalisation, I just think it's fascinating to think about the position of Audible. Uh, they're in a very, very clever position because they're one of the few who can balance podcasts, which are one means to an end. That is, Richard kramer has got some fantastic ideas. I want them in my head. I could listen to a podcast. I could read his book, audiobooks, and then you've got the data on hardback and paperback and Kindle copies as well. But Audible's in a position to work out how podcasts and books can grow each other's gardens. And I think that's quite unique for that company, given everyone else is shooting blind on this topic.
2: That- and, and maybe as a, as a last point to wrap up and, and a question for you, Andrew, is, is, so are we in a bubble with publishing, with all of these titles coming through every year, with this avalanche of potential, but a Hunger Games scenario for the very few authors that are able to turn it into a living and much more than a paid promotion channel to have your name in print?
3: You know, I, I, think, I think, yes, we are in a bubble. But I'll caveat that by saying, like many, like many other examples, publishing moves more slowly than a lot of other industries. And you could make the case that publishing has actually been in this surplus of supply for a long time. In fact, a lot longer than yeah. music, a lot longer than movies or TV, which are just now catching up. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you have is the publishing industry is still in that same situation, and it's getting worse every year. But in fact, I think the bubble is going to pop in the other industries first because the publishing uh, metabolism is just so slow
1: <laughs> well yeah we started donating spur, we finished donating data but honestly Andrea it's been the best podcast of them all so far fascinating to learn about the origins of bubble trouble you've been at it supplying more than it's demanded more than anyone else for longer than anyone else so this has been an absolute joy listening to you speak hopefully we can get you back on bubble trouble again in the future thank you so much
3: my pleasure I'd love to Thanks, Will. Thanks for joining.
2: If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time.